Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's bring in Pete Earle, economist and research fellow for the American Institute for Economic Research. Pete, there's lots of data we had today. But let's start with the Fed yesterday afternoon. What did you take away from Fed Chair Powell's comments? Good morning, and thanks for having me. Great to be back. So, so I mean, right now, I think what we're seeing is that, uh, and I mean, I have to drag in a little bit of history here. You know, the Fed was formed to prevent bank runs, bank financial panics, and then eventually employment was added and then uh, maintaining, maintaining uh, stable purchasing power. And now they're being called upon to uh, look at climate change, economic inequality, all that sort of thing. And so I think the Fed is actually under tremendous implicit political pressure. And it's becoming explicit because Powell's looking at the end of his term, possibly ending in February of 2022. So while I'm not suggesting that the, uh, he and the other governors of the Fed aren't concerned about or watching employment, I do think that the new policy framework is partially driven by scrutiny from a handful, a handful of individuals in Congress. So that's what I took away was his comments about saying, uh, whereby he said, uh, you know, I'm not going to raise rates um, until uh, you know, we, we regain more ground in terms of employment. Um, I do think he means it, but I also think that uh, some of the news we see today may, may, may force his hand. Uh, I, I do think that may happen, regardless of what's happening politically in terms of his uh, tenure. I mean, I just can't understand how much further you go in terms of employment. If deer workers are offered $8,500 <laughs> plus a 10% raise, plus five, plus five, and they say that's not good enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, yeah, I, mean, I mean, it seems like what we're seeing is uh, it's pretty intuitive, but I mean, it looks like when you offer people more money and better, more flexible work terms, they come back to work. I don't think that surprises anyone. Um, but what I think we're seeing, and especially I was stunned, to be honest today, by unit labor costs rising 8.3% and non-farm productivity falling 5%. That's the biggest drop in, 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 in almost 42 years. And what it suggests to me is that we may be seeing the beginnings of a classic wage price spiral, which... That would be very intimidating and, and, and kind of worrisome thing to happen because when it happened in England in the 70s, it led to all sorts of problems. So, so where do you think, Pete, those, I don't know how many of them, four or five million workers, they're just not there like they were pre-pandemic. Are they, some people are suggesting to me they retired. It's a structural or, change maybe. Yeah. Uh, where, where did they go, Pete? I think so. I, th I think what it is is that, uh, that, is that a lot of those people uh, have Really, as, I, as I, I think I mentioned last time I was on it, I think there's a huge sociological change happening where people are really starting to look closely at what they spent the last few decades doing. And if they didn't like it, they are actively trying to change their, their careers. And, 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 and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that doesn't involve, say, schooling. I don't think a lot of people right now have. I don't think as many people as out of the workforce are necessarily going to community college or receiving other forms of training. Uh, I think a lot of them are trying to figure out what they can do uh, to, to, to enjoy life more and still make pretty reasonable money. And there are entire employment agencies and websites and all that sort of thing dedicated to remote work now. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I, think, I think it is a structural change. I don't think it's virtual. All right, so that's interesting. And it, um, but, it, but, it, but it threatens the idea that uh, fl inflation is less transitory. And then 
we're hearing more and more people talk about the Fed is maybe laying the groundwork for a price wage spiral. I think everyone agrees we're not yep. there yet. But um, what can Jerome Powell do, especially if inflation is um, supply constrained? There's, it doesn't seem like monetary policy has much teeth in, in, in any kind of good way. Right. So we are more vulnerable to the wage price spiral I was describing before, with, given the uh, problems that we have with shipping and all that sort of thing. Uh, those, the, the, the crisis in shipping and getting stuff to ports and uh, this informal sort of uh, spontaneously emerging flotilla that they're, they're gathering off of all these ports to try and get into these ports and, and, and get the, all their cartons, uh, containers off, rather. Um, you know, that, that, that increases the vulnerability to these, these wage increases. But as for what Powell can do, um, well, he's gotta, first he's got to hit the taper. That's the first thing. Because that's it's still expansionary monetary policy. At that point, it becomes a question of whether and how much to, to raise rates and that sort of thing. And that's only going to affect, uh, you know, the, 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 the consumer demand and that sort of thing. It's not going to, of course, affect uh, uh, shipping on that. So sometimes big in. Some of that's not going to go away. Some of those pressures are not going to recede until we see uh, some resolution of what's happening in ports. Yeah. All right, Pete, great getting a little bit of time with you. Not enough. Again, we're going to have to rebook you. Pete Earle there, economist and research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. This is Bloomberg. When you think about workers that have really been disrupted by this pandemic, boy, you can't you have to start with the healthcare workers. We had so many images early in the pandemic here in New York, it's just, just healthcare workers completely worn down given the hours and the pressures they were under. Uh, hopefully things are getting better. Uh, we had jobless numbers today that came in better than expected, but let's see how that kind of translates into that healthcare space. Janet Elkin, President and Chief Executive Officer of Icon Medical Network, joins us on the phone from the Big D, Dallas, Texas. Janet, thanks so much for taking the time. I'd love to just start kind of stepping back and looking at the healthcare sector. I think about Boy, all those brave healthcare workers throughout this pandemic who have put themselves on the line to keep us safe and to treat uh, us during this pandemic. Give us a sense of how they're doing today. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And it's still really difficult for them. Um, you know, if you look at overall in the healthcare sector, I mean, healthcare quits are up 32%. Wow from 2019. So it's substantial. A lot of them are still very burnt out. And we're concerned about what this means down the road in terms of just not having enough, particularly, obviously, nurses and physicians. Yeah, I that is a terrible concern. And I've always thought, especially nurses, deserve to be you know, paid I know a, a couple lot more. Of nurses, just kind of anecdotally, a couple young women who have just graduated from nursing school and they're going in and they're going in with great enthusiasm and God bless them. But, you know, I'm just worried. Are there enough of them? You know? Well, and not only that, um, I and Janet, tell me what you think about this. I just did a story on meat packers and how difficult it is to hire people for that industry because the environment is, um, you know, it's a really hard work environment. But nurses, not only are they underpaid, I think everyone who's spent time in a hospital can agree, they have an incredibly difficult work environment. They really do. And, you know, it's interesting. I'll tell you a story about one nurse as an example of what hospitals need to do going forward past the pandemic 
to be able to attract and retain their nurses. I know of just one example of someone who was working full-time for a hospital, wanted to go back and get her graduate degree, wanted to continue to work full-time, but asked, could you just schedule me three days in a row to make it easier with my classes? They wouldn't do it. So what did she do? She quit. She went back to the same hospital as a per diem nurse, made more in Mm. two days than she did in three. Wow. That kind of thing just can't exist anymore with, I think, the generation that we're talking to. You know, uh, Janet, we're seeing across many, many industries, it, it appears, at least at this point, that flexible working schedules are the new reality of the five days in the office for most is, is, is not going to be the norm. Talk to us about that, that the healthcare space. How are they It's got to be harder in healthcare. It's got to be harder. You know, because you yeah, want, you as, be a, as a patient at least, yeah, you, you want to see your same nurse every day, but it's... Exactly, yeah. I would think. So, you know, Jen, what's the healthcare industry doing to deal with the new work environment? Do they just simply raise wages? I think that's only part of it. I think you can only pay people so much. I think it's also, again, just more flexibility of schedules. I mean, yes, you're right. For a bedside nurse, you really have to be at the hospital. But I think that if they would be more flexible with the schedules, probably, I mean, I'm in the temporary staffing space, but be more sensitive to that. We see it with our physicians as well. They are quitting in record numbers from hospitals and other healthcare facilities as well. They just, the younger generation, doesn't want that kind of lifestyle anymore. It's making it there. And by the way, you're not just seeing it there. We're seeing it in the dental profession as well. Gone are the days of somebody opening up their own clinic and they do it until they retire. Mm-mm. They're going to those big DSOs because they want the flexibility of the lifestyle. You know what I wonder as we, uh, I'm looking around at different communities and, and schools and I notice one of the um, benefits of a uh, higher income community is that teachers want to live and work there. And the opposite, of course, is true of, of oftentimes of a lower income community. Do you see the same? Do you face the same problems when you're looking to staff places that aren't, you know, Austin, Texas or mm-hmm. San Diego, California? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, rural is always going to be more difficult and more difficult now than ever because when you look at the trends of vaccination and the, the trends of infection, it's going to be higher in the rural areas often to begin with. So you layer that on top of the fact that it's just not considered as desirable of location. All right, Janet, really fascinating stuff. And it's always great to get some insight from you. Uh, I think we, we all learn a little bit when you come on. Janet Elkin, President and Chief Executive Officer of Icon Medical Network, talking to us out of the Lone Star State. Big D. You know, it is a good time to be an M&A banker. Record year deals galore. It doesn't matter. You don't even have to get on a plane, really, to get these deals done. You're kind of doing them via Zoom. So you sound bitter. Better. Yeah, it is. I used to love kind of racing around doing deals. But anyway, new world here, but the M&A fees are still coming in. Let's get a handle on what's kind of driving it this year and kind of what the outlook is. We can do that with Tom Bowen. He's the CEO and president of the Association for Corporate Growth. So, Tom, thanks so much for joining us here. It seems like a perfect storm kind of brewed here. We've got, you know, super low interest rates. We've got high stock prices. We've got a recovering global economy. Pretty good time. If I want to do a deal, now's a good time. Give us your thoughts about today's M&A market. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for having me. It, it, there's actually, in addition to those, there's there's kind of four key drivers we're seeing. Uh, number one is these expected uh, tax changes, uh, changes to the tax code, uh, capital gains, uh, uh, you know, uh, other types of things, carried interest that, that folks are afraid of. 
Maybe that's a little bit less important right now with the shakiness of the deal for the Biden administration, but still driving people to want to get done yep. uh, deals before the end of the de- uh, end of the year. Um, we've got this whole entire uh, idea of the the PEs trillion dollar wallet they have a ton of money sitting on yep. the side a lot of dry power uh dry, dry powder um so we know that there's a, a huge amount of money out there waiting to be deployed there's also this focus on really taking this whole uh um, platform focused business model and putting that into place we're seeing that in medical uh fields we're seeing that in veterinary we're seeing it more and more like franchise franchise type models that's happening over and over hang on expand really on that a little bit tom what what do you mean by a platform focused business model yeah so you know for traditionally if you looked at a veterinary business or a veterinary practice it was a single one a mom and pop or maybe they'd own two practices now there's this focus on really taking those and bringing them to multiples of a hundred practices and spreading the cost of uh, development marketing and um, systems all across pe has done an amazing job of that really overall and they've really started to deploy that to areas where we haven't seen that before certainly in the medical fields uh, and now it's happening more and more in just about every other area they do a really good job of mm. it all right, so what, that that was three. What's and the fourth? Think, yeah, the last one is you know people post pandemic fatigue, uh, family owned businesses are getting tired. They're looking for an exit. They they don't want to keep up the fight. And PE has the money and the inclination to come in uh, and and sign the check. So one of the things I'm concerned about as a former banker is valuation. That was kind of as a young banker, that was my job to run all the models um, in, in terms of valuation at discounted cash flow, the comps. Um, is there a risk yeah. here, particularly with all that private equity money on the sidelines, the buyers are overpaying here? There is a risk. I think it's dependent uh, upon which sector. I mean, uh, we're looking at for a veterinary, using that veterinary example, we're looking at 12 to 14 times EBITDA in many cases. Is that sustainable? I don't think so. I guess it depends on how much they can, how much of the cost they can keep pressing out uh, on, the, on the expense side to really make it uh, worthwhile. I think that my prediction is, or what we're seeing in our data so far, is that at the end of this year, we're going to start to see prices come down significantly for some of these deals because some of these pressures, these four pressures we're seeing, will start to alleviate, particularly on the tax, uh, the tax increase side. All right. So what about um, next year uh, when we when we see those things alleviate a little bit and um, deals slow down? I just how, how is that going to work out for the industry? I think the biggest pressure that the industry is going to see this next year is all around inflation uh, and what inflation does to deal flow overall and how they're able to capitalize either on it or. Um, um, you know, have it slow down some of the growth. So I think there's a, there's a couple of forces that we're seeing that could be incredibly um, uh, difficult. I think that's number one right now overall. And then obviously the labor shortage, um, that could go either way. But again, I, I think it's very, very sector specific. So what are the sectors that you think next year we should pay attention to? Uh, I will say it until uh, I'm blue in the face, medical, medical, medical. Uh, <laughs> it continues to grow. Uh, it continues to grow. It continues. The prices continue to increase. Uh, there seems to be nothing stopping it. We're getting older. The population is aging, and it is, is absolutely one of those um, sectors that uh, do incredibly well 
uh, being put on a platform type of approach and squeezing out a lot of the uh, duplicate costs. It's amazing how, you know, when, when you talk to tech people, they want to focus on medical. When you talk to real estate, commercial real estate people, they yep. want to focus on medical. When we talk to an M&A guy, yep. uh, you want to focus on medical. That's because really you're, getting, you're, you're getting older, Matt, so we need... I, you know, you tomorrow. Know. <laughs> I'm turning 48 tomorrow. No way. Yeah. All right, good for you. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Tom Bone, uh, they're talking to us about what's going on in the M&A world, and uh, really interesting to get his um, four drivers uh, of what we should be watching right now. All right, we got Joe Matthew, Washington correspondent, host of Bloomberg Sound On, which you can hear weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. Joe, let's start with the elections. Should the Democrats, I'm not say panicking, but should they take a really long, hard look at themselves in the mirror here? Well, they are. Okay. And we're about to hear from Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who seems motivated uh, <laughs> by the results on election night. And, you know, even though it was a win or a called win, at least, for Phil Murphy in New Jersey, the trend is clear. Uh, this was a much better experience for Republicans than anyone imagined and a lot more painful for Democrats. And so now there's a, a, a turn uh, to the moderates on, on Capitol Hill, and it looks like we're going to get some voting here. The Rules Committee in the House was uh, at it until after midnight last night as they try to prepare for votes. It could be tonight. We're, we're hearing uh, from the leadership here, they, there was a caucus meeting earlier. Nancy Pelosi says they want to vote on this reconciliation bill as soon as tonight. Wow. Now, of course, if that's the case, um, it's going to be interesting to see what makes it into the bill because they're still talking about adding more stuff back in like paid leave and, and uh, prescription drug pricing and so forth. But here's the thing, guys. They know it's going to go to the Senate. It's going to come back in a different form. So Nancy Pelosi can even stack this thing up if she wants to. It's going to come back from the Senate in much skinnier fashion at which point they may have no choice but to just approve it in the form that it's in at that point. So now, there might be light at the end of this tunnel. What, what was really the problem? I mean, um, President Biden yesterday made a couple of what I thought were slightly conflicting statements because yes. at first he said, this isn't anything to do with my uh, legislation or my huh. agenda. Uh, you know, What if it, they'd passed it? <laughs> what if they'd passed it? It wouldn't have made a difference. Right. And then later he said, this clearly shows that they want, the American people want to see us get to work. Well, yeah. Fine. But what, what was it? Was it Afghanistan? Were people unhappy about that? Is it taxes? Are people afraid that they're going to have to start paying a lot more? That's I getting mean, closer. I think that, yes, look, the talk about inflation, the talk about tax and spend is starting to just wear people down. And there is a conventional wisdom in the Democratic Party that if they had passed the Biden agenda, by God, this would have turned out differently. I'm not sure that that's true. I have a hard time connecting a lot of the dots here. People don't vote on the Biden agenda when they're picking their next governor necessarily or, the, or their next you know, local lawmaker. I, I spoke with Morgan Griffith last night, a Republican from southwestern Virginia. This is all the way yep. down the, the reddest of red in Virginia. And he said... You know, not only would that have not helped Terry McAuliffe win the governor, he said that Terry would have lost by five more points if they had passed the Biden agenda mm. because people would have been totally turned off by this multi-trillion dollar spending package. And I have to admit, in a state like Virginia, with the discourse that we saw on the campaign trail, I think he might have been closer to the truth. It's maybe but, it depends. But it's Joe. It's live. not the. I can't imagine it's the spending that bothers people. <laughs> it's the taxing that bothers sure. people. Well, you got it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, listen, and when you t tell people it doesn't cost anything, maybe that bothers people. I do think there's something to the aura 
of, look, Democrats aren't getting anything done. What's going on? There's nothing to show for months and months and months of talk and debate. That that could be a problem. But whether they were weighing in on a specific bill that hasn't even been written yet, that's a, it's a little bit difficult yep. uh, to, to make those connections here. Glenn Youngkin, though, did a good job talking about prices, what you're paying at the grocery store, what you're paying for gas. Those are the things that really that really impact people. And then you say, oh, another trillion dollars. My God, they've lost their minds in Washington. And then you start yep. connecting the dots a little bit more. That yeah, way. Joe, you know, I, I, for better or worse, I live in the great state of New Jersey. And I yes. can tell you here in this here in New Jersey, there was almost no discussion amongst people that I talked to when we we're talking about the race, about the, the bills. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, you know, it's kind of the left versus the right, whether it's Trump on the right or not. But it's that divide is so there and so pronounced. But there still. have to be, but there so has there has to be, to be swing be. voters, though, who said, you know what, I've had enough of Trump. It's mm-hmm. to some See, people, it, maybe he was embarrassing or he went too far. He was yep. offensive. But those people also, uh, they didn't necessarily want the progressive um, wing of the party to take over, and they may feel that way. For example, Trump got uh, got rid of the salt deduction almost as a punishment, right, right. to New Jersey and New York <laughs> right. voters. Yes. It worked. And you would have thought, <laughs> all right, now Trump's gone. Give us our salt deduction back. Yeah. But you've got Bernie Sanders and AOC apparently running this issue. So, Joe, well, what's, what, what's the Democratic, the DNC, what are they thinking about for 2022, do you think? Oh, boy. I think that they're sticking with this this so-called conventional wisdom. Okay. Uh, the old CW would they say just pass something. Show that you did something. Okay. Get get the get this thing done. Get roads and bridges. I mean, my God, we talk about reconciliation all day. That infrastructure bill that passed the Senate months ago still has not passed the House. And uh, that actually could go along. That's a slightly different matter. That could go mm. a long way because you okay. start seeing people, oh, they're, they're, they're getting jobs. They're picking up shovels. They fixed that bridge in my town. That's actually stuff you can get your hands around. And I think that the DNC sees that as something important here. Uh, if you talk to the RNC, however, and you talk to the, the, you know, the, the guys on Capitol Hill about mm-hmm. that, Kevin McCarthy will tell you he can turn 63 seats this year based on what happened the other wow. night. Wow. Yep. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to get your perspective. Joe Matthew there with, as Paul says, his finger on the pulse of what's going on in D.C. And you can get more from him if you listen to Bloomberg Radio at 5 p.m. Joe Matthew, the host of Sound On. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.